Welcome to Construction Cashflow. I'm your host, Stu Davidson, and if you haven't already done so, hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Don't worry about what other people think about you. Focus on how you feel about yourself. No one can make you feel inferior without your consent. The job of a lawyer isn't to show off how much law I know and how many case names I can regurgitate for you or what big words I can use. My job is to take all of those difficult legal concepts and distill them down into some clear advice. You know, actually, Stu, one of the reasons why I was really keen to come onto your podcast is because I've noticed that a few of your guests have, have made comments similar to that, that there seems to have been situations where parties might have had lawyers who have encouraged them to run a particular argument in an adjudication that was never going to succeed, for example, or even to go to adjudication when the claim didn't have any merit. And that makes me think that that party has the wrong lawyer. That's an interesting question, Stu. There's all these relatively new procurement methods like the alliancing contract and like the PPC, TPC partnering contracts where it's all about working together so that you avoid disputes. But I still see disputes under those contracts. The risk of a dispute is the same under each of them. The real problem is parties not entering into the contracts correctly uh, and entering into contracts that they don't understand what they need to do under them. I would say that over 90% of the disputes that I deal with, the issues have come about because of either there's a problem with the contract itself that a clause is unambiguous or there isn't even a proper contract or a document's missing from it or there's some uncertainty uh, or the issue is that the contract itself is fine but the parties have just not read it properly don't know what they're meant to do under it and have just put it in a in a drawer when they've started the project and haven't used it as the active project management tool that it's supposed to be If the NEC worked perfectly on a project, parties would get their notices in really quickly, they'd assess the risk of a compensation event, they would agree something and then move on. But actually, I see so much where there's been no notices served, the other party hasn't said anything, hasn't chased that notice, it's as though that mechanism just doesn't exist. You can have a perfect contract, but it's only going to work in practice if, if the parties actually follow it and understand it and what their risk is under it. And get on my soapbox a bit here, students. Please try and get me involved earlier on in a project because if you get me involved at the beginning, I can then help you avoid issues and that saves you money overall. read the contract and make sure that everyone who is working on the project has also read the contract and knows what they need to do. In this show, we ask our guests to tell us their story, tell us a little bit about their background, how they got to where they are today. 
how they develop their product, their services, their ideas. And we discuss how that can affect construction cash flow and other areas of construction. And also to give us an idea of how we might make things better and give you a few tips and ideas to take away with you. And listen to the end where you'll find out more about them, more about our guests, about what motivates them, what inspires them. And hopefully that'll inspire you too. And always don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss another episode. In this episode, I have the pleasure of introducing you to Carly Thorpe. Carly is a partner and lawyer at Walker Morris, and she was voted a next generation partner by Legal 500. She's a member of Tesca and the Adjudication Society. And she's also a diversity champion and mental health first aider. So it's without further ado, I have the pleasure of introducing you to Carly Thorpe. Hi Carly, it's really great to have you on the show. I'm so excited. How are you doing today? Hi Stu. Yeah, thank you. I'm really good, thanks. Very excited to be on this show. It's my first ever podcast, so yeah, excited to be here. So Carly, tell us a bit about your story, a bit about how you got to where you are now. Great, thank you. Yes, Stu. So in terms of how I got here, I like to think that I'm a good example of that where you start out in life doesn't always determine where you will end up. So I grew up in Huddersfield in West Yorkshire. I grew up in a council house. I was raised by my grandparents. We didn't have a lot of money. I was on free school meals, etc. It it wasn't always easy. And when I was young, I spent quite a lot of time around family law solicitors because of some various family issues that were going on. And they always seemed really glamorous and intelligent to me. And from about being seven or eight, I always thought, yes, I want to be a lawyer. And it was just based upon seeing them. I think they were the first professional people that I'd ever seen. So I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to be a lawyer. But um, I'm a mixed race. I'm working class. I'm female. And that's meant that throughout my career, I've always felt a bit on the back foot and like that the odds were stacked against me. So I've often felt like an outsider because I didn't have any connections within the legal sector. And it did make me question myself and my ability to progress. You know, it can be really, really difficult to pursue a career as a lawyer when you don't have any connections to help kind of secure training contracts and work experience. And I also found like when I was doing my A-levels, so, you know, you do your A-levels, start thinking about what you want to do next. The um, careers advisors at my college actually discouraged me from being a lawyer because they, I remember one of them said to me, oh, you just, you just won't be a good fit for being a lawyer, which is one of those like frustratingly ambiguous statements. And so, I mean, I just ignored that and thought, well, I'm going to try anyway. So I eventually studied law with Spanish at the University of Sheffield. And then I eventually managed to get a training contract at a firm in Birmingham, which it's now called Gowling WLG, but it will always be Rag & Co to me. It was Rag & Co when I was there. So I did, went to law school in Birmingham, did my two years of training and moved to Walker Morris in 2015. 
I got married in Birmingham and my husband's from Barnsley and we decided, oh, let's move back north closer to home. So moved up to Home Firth in West Yorkshire and moved to Walker Morris in 2015. Uh, since then, I've risen through the ranks at Walker Morris and got to be a partner in May 2022 to avoid others going through the kind of difficult path that I had to get to be a solicitor. I'm really passionate about improving diversity in the legal profession. So there's various schemes that I'm involved in at Walker Morris now to try and attract people from all sorts of backgrounds to think actually I can be a lawyer as well. So, I mean, one of the things that I'm really excited about at the moment is that we've just launched the solicitor apprenticeship scheme, which is a um, six year program where someone who is just got A-levels, hasn't been to university, can come and work with us for six years, get paid, get all of their tuition fees paid for and um, qualify as a solicitor at the end of it. So it's a really great way of qualifying without getting that university debt and all of the issues with trying to get work experience. And um, if that had been around when I was 18, I would definitely have been trying to do that because the cost of university and law school is just so much money when you don't have any family support. I've been a construction lawyer now for 10 years. I um, first came across construction law in my training contract when I was in Birmingham at RAGS. I was put into construction law for my first seat, the first department that you start training in. And I didn't really know what it was, but then as soon as I started, I just loved it. I, I love the contracts, all of the case law, the clients, the excitement of working on projects. I've just, I, I just seem to suit it. I think sometimes it can be quite scrappy and you've got to do a lot of fighting to get the result that you want for your client. And it, it seems to be something that, you know, I, I've always fitted well into. And as part of your training, you then move around lots of other different departments and I've never liked anything else as much. So I was really lucky to qualify into construction in 2013. And then I've just been, you know, doing more construction law since then. And now the majority of my clients are contractors and subcontractors. So I like to focus upon preemptively managing their risk through things like contract reviews, preparing precedent subcontracts, terms and conditions, helping them implement systems to ensure that contracts are entered into correctly. And then when disputes do arise, I devise strategies for my clients to get those resolved. So ranging from adjudications, adjudication enforcement, arbitration, litigation. Um, I've got clients all over the UK and internationally. Um, and across all different sectors. So just to give you a flavour, Stu, the, on my desk at the moment, I've got um, a development of 900 residential homes down in Watford. I've got a dispute in respect of an energy from waste plant in Yorkshire. I've got some retirement living projects. I've got a shopping centre that I'm doing the construction documents for. So a real mix of everything. Um, I like to do across different sectors because I think that's how you get a really good flavour of what's actually going on in the construction industry. My background has turned me into a, a bit of a fighter and I use that now to, to try and get the necessary results from my clients. But I think what one thing that makes me a good lawyer is that because I come from a working class family where I get told off if I use big words in my family, that um, I'm good at explaining things to clients in a simple, easy to understand way. 
So, you know, a lot of clients say to me that they're used to lawyers providing advice that they don't understand or that doesn't give them a clear steer. And that's something that I'm really passionate about because I always think the job of a lawyer isn't to show off like, you know, how much law I know and how many case names I can regurgitate for you or what big words I can use. I always think my job is to take all of those difficult legal concepts and distill them, distill them down into some clear advice, which the client can then base their commercial decisions upon. So that's what I always try and focus on. And, and that that's always my priority. Amazing, amazing story, Carly, you know, particularly coming from your background where you were going through university and then becoming a lawyer. Um, it's such an amazing feat. You know, and it, you bring such such a lovely personality to, oh, to the profession. You. And, and it, you know, I see that. And you quite often find with lawyers, they can be a little bit aloof. You know, they're, <laughs> they're very kind of matter of fact, this is the law. Mm. But you're kind of, you know, you bring that kind of warmth, but that very kind of um, experience and that, that background where, you know, you look like someone that you'd want in there in your corner you know, to, to fight, um, to fight a legal battle for you. So, you know, what, what were the kind of key challenges that you initially found in, in studying law? And was there any points that you thought, well, I'm not really sure whether I want to do this or have you always been, you know, uh, no, this is nothing's going to hold me back or has there been times when you felt, I'm not sure whether I can, I can do this. Yes, definitely, Stu. So I, I've always wanted to do it, but there's been a lot of doubt along the way as to whether I'm ever going to get there or be able to do it. So, I mean, it's for me, it started right back when I was 18 and had careers advisors saying, you know, I don't think you, you're going to make it as a lawyer. And then when I got to university, the the other people that I was at university with, a lot of them had much posher accents than me, seemed to come from backgrounds with much more money than me. And a key issue was that they just seemed to have a lot of connections. And that meant that, you know, I'd hear my classmates talking about some work experience that they'd secured. And I'd be like, oh, I, I, I need to get some work experience. And so I'd then, because I'm quite optimistic, Stu. So I was like, well, I'll just ring these law firms and try and get some work experience. And um, they they were like, oh, no, we don't offer it to first years. And so then I'd asked the people on my course, well, why how have you got this work experience? How did you do it? And it was always through, oh, you know, it's my dad's friend or it's a family friend or and I just didn't have that. And then when I started having interviews for vacation schemes, which is kind of the work experience bit that you do before you try and get a training contract. And it was really silly things like I didn't really know how to make small talk or even how to shake someone's hand because I just hadn't done that before and it wasn't something mm. that I'd ever really seen people doing so it was just really awkward and I just sort of fluffed it a bit to be honest and um, you know it makes you feel other and kind of on the back foot to everyone else who seems to find things like that so easy and even then when I was then eventually training as a lawyer, there's so many kind of small things that add up together, like well-meaning advice from people, um, where people would say things like, oh, you know, you need to dress really smartly all the time, because if not, people won't take you seriously. And 
I remember I was going to a meeting and someone said to me, oh, you, you should really do something about your hair before the meeting because it's a bit big and distracting. And um, for example, there were lots of networking events that would be around like doing a sport, like playing cricket or something. And I'd just never learned how to play anything like that. So it felt very sort of exclusionary. And so I think the overall difficulty it's just feeling on the back foot and not good enough and that you're kind of a few steps behind everyone else and you have to work a lot harder than everyone else and it really does affect your confidence and so that's something that I've constantly had to work on to feel kind of good enough and I mean people always say to me like oh you don't look like a lawyer and I always think like well what what does a lawyer look like <laughs> but it's that like you know stereotypical I suppose white quite posh male and I'm none of those things um but you know it's taken me a good few years to realize that you there isn't like a certain way that you need to look or be to be a lawyer because you know all clients are different and I always think like so much of the job of a lawyer is to solve problems and to come up with ideas of this is what we need to do and to do that you need like a range of different people or everyone's just going to come up with the same ideas so I like to think that I give a different viewpoint and I don't know I think sometimes it helps clients trust me because a lot of them might come from a similar background to I do um but yeah it's felt like a hard slog and that's why I'm so keen now to try and improve things for people coming in and try and get more people from diverse backgrounds to think actually yeah I I can be a lawyer as well and I love the way that you've dealt with the naysayers in your life you know <laughs> I, I always find that and now you're you, you know you've progressed to a partner in Walker Morris and you know it's no mean feat to get to that position and I love it that you bring in that breath of fresh air and in into the legal profession and Thank it does you. need to change and and I think particularly in construction where we're dealing with you know bricklayers carpenters surveyors mm. you know people from all different backgrounds so it take it needs lawyers of all different backgrounds to be mm. able to to relate so that's refreshing so now that now that you're 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 a partner and you you're looking you know you're 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 probably looking at um bringing in new talent and you've got mm -hmm. this wonderful scheme where uh they the apprenticeship scheme which is fantastic mm. well what sort of characteristics would you be looking for for a new recruit as an apprentice um i think you just need someone who's really eager to to learn and to to help out and to be part of the team so a lot of the time like the individual tasks that you're doing might not be that exciting but it's all about how that contributes to the case as a whole and then you know you have to have good people skills because you or being a lawyer is all about just talking with people and working as a team working with people and so you you need to be able to just kind of have a chat with people and connect with them and I suppose one thing is good time management because the job does get, you know, quite quite a big to-do list sometimes and there's a lot to keep up with. So, but that's something we help people develop as they go on. But for me, it's enthusiasm because you've got to put the work in. There's a lot to learn. And, you know, I'm always saying to my trainees, like, you take the JCT contract home with you and read it and it's and it's asking them to do work outside of their normal hours but you have to in order to really get to grips with what it's all about and what it means so if, if you don't have that kind of passion for it you're not going to progress very far.
absolutely yeah and that's so important isn't it knowing the contract inside out knowing mm. you know not only knowing verbatim what's in the contract but actually which what each clause means for the yeah. different parties and you know now you know coming on to the to, to that side of things yeah and and in and construction um so you know we've we, we we generally got several standard forms of contract that are used yeah. um sometimes they're amended sometimes they're not um do you see any particular uh uh well, any particular procurement route uh design and build or construction management or traditional that that generates more disputes than the others or or do you feel that 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 they're kind of they could come up uh, equally in 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 either a procurement route that's an interesting question Stu because you you know there's all these I'd say relatively new procurement methods like the alliancing contract mm. and like the PPC TPC partnering contracts where it's all about working together so that you avoid disputes but I still see disputes under those contracts and I, I think there's no kind of good or bad way of procurement that is going to avoid a dispute. I think it's the risk of a dispute is the same under each of them. I think the real problem is parties not entering into the contracts correctly uh, and entering into contracts that they don't understand what they need to do under them. So, I mean, Stu, I act for contractors and subcontractors. So, you know, on both sides, people who are seeking payment, people who are defending payment claims. And I would say that over 90% of the disputes that I deal with, the issues have come about because of either there's a problem with the contract itself, that a clause is unambiguous, or there isn't even a proper contract, or a document's missing from it, or there's some uncertainty. Uh, or the issue is that the contract itself is fine, but the parties have just not read it properly, don't know what they're meant to do under it, and have just put it in a in a drawer when they've started the project and haven't used it as the active project management tool that it's supposed to be. So, I mean, the NEC is a really good example of that, that if the NEC worked perfectly on a project, parties would get their notices in really quickly, they'd assess the risk of a compensation event, they would agree something and then move on. But actually, I see so much where there's been no notices served, the other party hasn't said anything, hasn't chased that notice. It's as though that mechanism just doesn't exist. And, and so it's that, I think, you know, you can have a perfect contract, but it's only going to work in practice if, if the parties actually follow it and understand it and what their risk is under it. And that's something that I work with with clients all the time, Stu, to try and get them to use the contract from the beginning so i'll do like a workshop at the start of a project where we'll go through the contract clauses and say you know these are the types of notices you need to serve because if if not if you don't understand it then it's just going to be the same risk under any type i think that's a that, that that's a message actually that's coming across quite a lot through through guests that i interview in terms of you know contractors are signing up to things they don't know they don't understand the contract mm -hmm. the contract's not drafted properly and they don't actually know what to do with the contract when they've got it i, I really yeah. like your idea i really like your idea of a workshop at the beginning mm 
to go through with the contract and the parties uh what their obligations are how they're gonna how, how they need to run the contract because quite often people think of i'll bring the lawyer in if something goes wrong and traditionally no one really thinks about the the lawyer at the beginning can they give us some guidance on we've got these contract documents here you know do can we can we get some guidance at, in the at the front end you know mm -hmm. um and i, I think this is more aware there's more, more awareness of that and and i think do you, do you see more contractors now reaching out for advice at the beginning than they used to or do you think things are changing a little bit or not oh well this is something that um i'll get on my soapbox a bit here Stu. that um i i i am always always saying to my clients please try and get me involved earlier on in a project because if you get me involved at the beginning i can then help you avoid issues and that saves you money overall now i think generally there is a growing problem in the construction industry of almost a distrust of lawyers and that where people think you know lawyers are just out to make money if we get the lawyers in it's going to make it more expensive it's going to formalize matters and make us not look commercial and create animosity and that's just not true. And, um, you know, actually, Stu, one of the reasons why I was really keen to come onto your podcast is because I, I've noticed that a few of your guests have, have made comments similar to that, that, um, that there seems to have been situations where parties might have had lawyers who have encouraged them to run a particular argument in an adjudication that was never going to succeed, for example, or even to go to adjudication when the claim didn't have any merit. And that makes me think that that party has the wrong lawyer you really need to have a lawyer that you can pick the phone up to and ask a question and you're not going to be slapped with a big bill for it so my clients just just ring me all the time and and i'll just answer a question for free because it's about that ongoing relationship so and you know particularly at walker morris we're not just going to charge someone a massive fee and send them to an adjudication that they could have avoided because they'll never come back so i'd rather do loads of small bits of work for a client over 20 30 years than just get one big job from them and i think it's all about building that relationship every construction company should have a lawyer that they can ring and ask questions for free and that they have that relationship with someone and if they don't they need to go and try and get it because I think that's what's going to make people avoid risk going forwards. So it's things like, you know, adjudication itself is a brilliant process. And there was a big problem in the 1990s, and that's what it sought to address. But it's not perfect, and it is always better to be avoided. So if, if you can resolve things before you get to those formal proceedings, everyone saves money and so that's what I'm, I'm always focused on with clients trying to work out a way to solve things efficiently for them so that they're not incurring those massive legal fees um but that's all about being brought in early enough to spot that issue and resolve it before you get to a point where your only option is to serve a notice or you, you're a responding party who's been served with a notice so so yeah my big message to all clients is get get me involved at the beginning because i'm always happy to have like a, a goodwill chat with people because then it helps you kind of identify what might be a problem going forwards and i really hope that more people do that because that's how we're going to avoid this problem of parties ending up in adjudication
That's really refreshing. And hopefully by the podcast, we can get that message out there, mm. you know, because I think that some contractors, particularly smaller contractors, they are afraid to approach a lawyer early on because yeah. they think it's going to be really expensive. But you're bringing that, you know, that kind of real long-term relationship, looking at long-term uh, client value as, as opposed to in the old days, they would, uh, a lawyer would kind of represent you. But yeah. Even if you couldn't get an answer out of them, are we, how are we going to do, you know, but getting involved, it seems a lot more positive getting involved earlier. And it's interesting what you're saying, because um, Len and, 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 and Dave from the CICV mm. uh, were talking about, actually, it was um, Dave McDonald was talking about, you know, we, we, um, we bring, when a new contractor comes onto site, he yeah. has to go through the health and safety training. Mm. You know, why not bring on uh, quality training and, le you know, the contract training as well? Yeah. And, you know, why should health and safety be any different to the contract training? And it should be that if they don't do the contract toolbox talk, uh, they, they're they not going to step foot on site, you know. And uh, I thought that was a great concept. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that is what's necessary so that everyone understands what, what needs to be done. And I've I've done that in two different ways, Stu. So one way is that you get all parties to do like a legal workshop for a day. So you've got the 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 client, the contractor, and the main subcontractors all in a room together, all going through the contract together with with a lawyer who's gonna take them through, you know, this is the relevant event mechanism under each document and this is these are the notices and you you subcontractor serve this notice and then you contractor pass that up the line to the client and so then everyone knows what everyone else is doing or equally I've just done it a workshop with one party to to go through what they need to do and what their risks are but I think you you do seem to get I've, I've had it when I've been dealing with disputes and I've spoken to like the project engineer and they've said oh what what's that document you're looking at I've never seen that before and that was the contract and you, you just think well how have you been working on this for all of this time so it yeah I, I think that that's a great idea and I, I think sometimes parties are reluctant to have external lawyers involved because they're worried how it might look to the other parties as though they're being overly contractual or someone who's going to be difficult and create disputes. So I'd say that, you know, no one needs to know that you're getting an external lawyer's advice. I We do lots of things like where we'll draft a document and then the client will send it out on their letterhead. So you, you, you don't need to be broadcasting if that's something that you're concerned of, that you have got this external advice. But I do think it's so important. It's an investment to save money. Absolutely. And it's one of those things of adding value, isn't it? Mm. You know, to, when, when you think about the little bit of investment in a lawyer's advice at the beginning, you yeah. know, uh, when, when, when you consider how much it costs when things go wrong mm. and that exactly. little bit of investment at the front end uh, could prove dividends and not only avoid disputes, but actually protect your profit. And, and ensure that mm. you do make a profit on the on the project yeah uh, that's that's my view yeah. yeah I mean it's really good that there's so many initiatives now to try and help people understand the contract early on um I think it's just a case of 
trying to get that message out so that more people appreciate the value of protecting illegal risk from the beginning. Do you see any particular type of dispute coming up more than others? Are they generally over payment, delays um, or other things? It, it's a real mix, Stu. So, I mean, a growing problem in the industry that we see loads of issues with is delays to payment. So payment disputes where the actual amount has been agreed, but then it just hasn't been paid, um, which then, you know, creates cash flow difficulties for everyone. And, and that's led where, you know, clients have come to me and then we've we've tried to escalate it and get that payment. But sometimes you can't do it and have to go to adjudication. And then sometimes even then you get through the adjudication process and then you need to go to enforcement because they're not paying it. So I think delayed payment is a real issue. And then we still see cost disputes because of the, the rising cost in materials. So that's actually something that the issues seem to be arising at the drafting stage where now there's the parties, it's much more of an argument over who's going to take the risk of fluctuations in price because it seems that everyone recognises that, you know, if you're going in for a lump sum contract, there's a risk that by the time you get to actually buy in that material, it's going to be a lot much more expensive. So in that respect, we've seen a, a lot more call to, to include price escalation clauses where you've got a clear mechanism of what happens if this particular material, let's say like steel or copper or something, increases in price, who's going to pay for that and how to spread that risk. It's not so much the type of dispute that's different. What, I, what I'm seeing more and more of at the moment is parties in dispute and willing to go to adjudication or you know engage lawyers and send formal letters where previously they might have just done a deal and, and written off some of that loss. It's almost like particularly smaller subcontractors hmm. can't, can't currently afford to write off that loss. And so previously they might have said, well, we'll agree to that because we'll get another project from this client in, in the near future. And so we won't push for that additional money. Now they're thinking, actually, we really need to push for it because we've got all of these cash flow issues. We've got all of these bills to pay. And so I think that's the real change that there seems much more of a willingness to go into that formal proceedings. Yeah, and it's good to see lawyers specialising and supporting uh, the subcontractors on mm. on projects. And I think you you do hit the nail on the head because subcontractors are quite often, you know, nervous about rocking the boat or mm. saying anything, nervous about not getting the next project. Um, yeah. What do you think the key strategy is, if you like, for bringing these sorts of claims where you could kind of uh, bring a claim without uh, wrecking the relationship I think that's quite a, a skill isn't it you know to stand up for what you're entitled to but you know maintain that relationship with the client yeah I, it's difficult The the way to do it is to be upfront from an early stage about what you are claiming exactly as you've said people are scared to raise something like in a project team meeting but that means that by the time then months later and it's escalated and there's the other side slapped with a lawyer's letter it, it's much more of a surprise so i think it's a, a staged approach so you start off with a letter from let's say the subcontractor itself and then there might be a letter that that we draft but they send that's a bit more formal and then you'll get a letter from us. And I think it's about always being willing to meet with them and even trying to get them to agree on the issue that gets referred to adjudication. So 
you know, it might be like, look, we can't agree on this one contractual clause. So why don't we get a third party opinion on it? So you're trying to be collaborative in that way. Mm. Um, but, you know, one strategy that um, I've, I've seen a, a number of clients do is where you, you have the formal lawyer's letter, but then you just give the other side a ring beforehand and say, look, you're going to get this formal lawyer's letter. We've had to send this to protect our position. It basically it's all the lawyers and can we just sort something out commercially and i think that really helps because mm. it it means you know it's like these big bad lawyers no one none of us want them involved let let us be sensible so that this doesn't escalate further so but i think it's all all of that that i've just said boils down to communication mm. and not being scared to raise that point and um i think keeping quiet and allowing a problem to escalate is more damaging to the relationship than raising it early and saying, look, we want to sort this out. We want to be commercial, but equally, we can't just write off all of these losses. So we need you to meet us halfway. If you've got any kind of a, a, a single tip that you would give maybe a subcontractor uh, or a contractor, they're just about to enter into a, in, into a contract, um, what sort of things should they do first? What things they should avoid? They don't necessarily understand what they're signing up to. So what could yeah. they what could they do initially, really, to 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 understand what risk is there? When you've got your draft document, get a lawyer to sit and look at it with you and talk you through what each of those clauses mean, because that's what I I do a lot or we'll do a note that just explains what each clause means because it can be hard with the words that just don't make sense and if if you don't want to incur the cost of a lawyer or it's not something that's in your budget at the moment then ask the other party what they think that clause means and ask them to put it in writing for you because that might help to understand what is actually intended by that clause and avoid any confusion in terms of a key tip it's actually read the contract and make sure that everyone who is working on the project has also read the contract and knows what they need to do. So whether that's you have an internal workshop, you send around an internal note, you, you have something that everyone on your project needs to sign and make sure that they've done so that you know that everyone's kind of singing from the same hymn sheet and understands all of the risks. Just in terms of other tips, I just wanted to mention this because this was a really good system that I was talking to a client with a few weeks ago where this particular client's always had a big problem with keeping records and yeah, that's such an issue in the construction industry throughout and and what they did which I thought was brilliant was actually get everyone who was working on the project when they were driving home at night to dictate a voice note of everything that had happened that day and it worked really well because we actually had then like four or five different corroborating accounts of what happened that day. And, you know, each person had missed stuff out. But once you've got all of them together, we could then pull together as lawyers a full account of the day. Um, and you got so much more detail than you would have done if someone was just doing a written site diary. But the other benefit was actually that it was really therapeutic for each of them because on their drive home, they could kind of unload all of their thoughts about the day and then by the time they got home they'd left it all behind and they'd worked through all of those frustrations so I, I thought that was just something really ingenious because it I think it's not about like trying to put in place perfect records it's finding a way that works for you and for your staff that's actually that in practice they're actually going to do 
that's an amazing example. I haven't heard that one before. That's an absolute gem. Uh, I, I think thought it's a great so, so rocket idea. Internet, really, yeah. really, really good idea. Mm. Excellent. So, well, fantastic. It's It's been amazing. And there's some absolute Thanks. gems. And I'm going to really enjoy going back through this one because I've learned so much from you today. Oh, <laughs> um, so so where could um, where's the best place for if, if somebody wanted to get in touch with you? What, what's the best best way they can do that? Oh, excellent. Well, I am. I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. I post on there a lot. So please do connect with me on LinkedIn. I, um, me and my colleagues produce a monthly bulletin about adjudication called Adjudication Matters. You can sign up for that on the Walker Morris website. It's then, it's completely free. It includes legal updates on adjudication. We do various events. We've got an adjudication webinar coming up on the 15th of March that you can sign up to for free. Um, or please do just drop me an email or, or give me a ring. Always happy just to have a chat with people. So, yep. Um, as I say, LinkedIn, please check out our bulletins, all of the things that we produce to try and increase knowledge of particular legal principles. And, and yeah, do get in touch with me directly, email or phone. So, Carly, time for a quick fire round. Excellent. Thank you. OK, so first question coming up. How do you start your day? Oh, well, currently, um, my husband and I are um, have got into a routine of going on gym dates most mornings. So we'll get up and go to the gym together. We're both trying to um, lose a bit of timber. So it's a good way of both trying to go together um, and encourage each other to go. But I really like exercising in the morning. It feels like you get one thing done and you can take that one good thing off and then sit and get on with the rest of your day and it doesn't matter like what goes wrong or what unexpected things come up because at least you've got your workout in so yeah when are you most productive so definitely first thing in the morning um if i have something that needs doing i like to get up early and crack on with it before anyone else wakes up or emails me or rings me um i'm a big fan of country music and so i i like to get my headphones on have my country music playlist on and just have a cup of tea and focus and try and work through so you know if ever i've got some tricky drafting or anything that's when i'll be doing it first thing what's something new happening in your life right now um, well, I'm actually learning how to play darts um, because I um, went to a flight club with some friends and um, me and my husband have been a few times as well. And he's really good at darts and I'm not so good. So we've got a darts board in our house. So I'm every day trying to do a bit of darts practice. Um, I'm really enjoying it, actually. It's very therapeutic to throw something hard at the wall. So... <laughs> What does adventure look like to you? Um, definitely hiking up a big hill. So whenever thing, I really like to just get outside and go for a long walk. So I love to go on um, trips around the country and go, you know, walking in the hills, going to the Lake District or wherever, or even just around where I live in Home Firth. If, you know, I've got a, a, a free Sunday I like to just get off and go on a long walk around everywhere you never know what you're going to see but it's just so calming as well and I think I, I always get a real sense of achievement if I um, manage to correctly follow a map and do, do the walk correctly so you know if we're in the Lake District and it's like oh let's do this eight mile walk today I, I like to when you get to the end and you think actually we've not gone wrong once and we've found the way what thing would you love to do that might surprise your friends and family? 
um, a difficult one, this, because I'm, I'm quite open about um, all, all of the things that I'm working on. But um, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently is that I would, would really like to qualify as an adjudicator. Um, because I just love like adjudication case law and I think it's so interesting and um, I, I think it would make me a better party representative. So that that's the thing that I'm going to work on over the next couple of years, trying to move towards qualifying as an adjudicator. Name a challenge you overcame that changed your life. Oh, so, you know, during my teens, I had um, a tough few years where I had... Um, mental health issues and an eating disorder and it, it took me you know a, a long time up until like my early 20s to get to get right again and it um made me I think resilient and aware of my well-being and just you know life is so busy and overwhelming and it's important to check in and make sure you're looking after yourself and and I feel really glad that I went through that as a teenager and now I've got my own strategies for recognising when I need to rest or when I need to go and have some fun and stop working. And I'm really glad that I learned that before I got into being a lawyer, because law is a profession notorious for mental health issues. It's really high stress, long hours, a difficult workload. It can be difficult emotionally when, you know, you've not you can't give clients the answer that they need or they want. Um, and so I'm really glad that I've, I think going through that at a young age has made me a better lawyer in that respect because I'm much better at managing that stress. And now I spend a lot of time helping others devise their own strategies to look after their mental health. So I'm a mental health first aider at work, which means I help people to identify when they're struggling and point them to where they can get help. And it's something that I think, you know, we, we all need to watch for. Absolutely. And sometimes we don't want to talk about it, do we? And and, and that's the thing. And we can mm. be in denial. And, you know, it's, it's always good to have that confidence to speak about it and to share how we're how we're feeling from a, from that perspective. Yeah, I always try and be really open about that, because I think there shouldn't be any shame and and people should feel free to talk about when they're struggling because you know mental health isn't this big taboo thing that you have to hide I think we should all be really open so that we can help each other who or what inspires and motivates you um so I I love to learn Stu so I, I just love doing anything new where I'm, I'm going to learn something and get some new like random facts in my brain so I mean that's one of the reasons why I love construction law so much because there's so many new cases coming out all the time or every case that I do I learn something really weird and random about some technology so for example I've spent um, four years working on a dispute relating to gasification technology which burns waste and turns it into electricity essentially um and i've learned so so much about that i feel like i, I you know i'd never have, have thought that i would ever know anything about gasification and now I've, you know you just you pick up all of these random things so yeah i think that's what really gets me out of bed every day and um makes me really enjoy the job that you know there's always something new to learn and it's never boring I've, I've got a case at the moment about abusive process and the tort of deceit and that's something that I haven't looked at since law school and I've really enjoyed getting into the books and learning all about it again so I'm basically just a big geek.
So what does success mean to you? Um, I always think I have been successful when I have forced myself to do something that scares me. So, so many times over the years, I've doubted myself and felt like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do this. And I know that everyone has those feelings sometimes. And I'll always try and put that to one side and think, you know, just do the scary thing anyway, um, even if I have to give myself a, a stern pep talk in the toilet beforehand. Um, <laughs> Stu, when, when I was a kid, I um, loved that TV show Rugrats, that um, cartoon. And um, the, there's a character in Rugrats called Chucky who has this catchphrase where he says, like, I am a big, brave dog. And, um, yeah, sometimes I like to just chant that to myself before doing something really scary. Um, but I think so long as you force yourself to do the scary thing, even if it doesn't go that well or it could have gone better, like, you, you're still successful because you tried. So I, I always just try and remind myself of that, that, you know, it, it's all right to be scared about it, but just do it anyway. Last question. What advice would you give your young self? So definitely don't worry about what other people think about you. Focus on how you feel about yourself. I um, have just above my desk here um, the Eleanor Roosevelt quote that no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. And that's something that I, I could really have done with taking to heart when I was younger. I spent a lot of time, as I mentioned, you know, trying to look like a lawyer and um, often felt like I wasn't good enough. And now, I mean, I know that people value me as I am, but I think that's something that I suppose everyone could do with improving on that. It matters what you think about yourself, not really what other people think about you. That's amazing. Thanks so much, Carly. It's been thank amazing. You. No, You've thanks been so amazing. much for having me. It's been an excellent interview. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Construction Cashflow. Hit the subscribe button if you haven't already done so, so you never miss an episode. And remember, the faster cash flows, the faster wealth grows. If you enjoy this episode and you love the show, please do give us your review.